The views expressed are those of the speakers and do not necessarily represent the views of the Department of Defense or its components. This is perspective number six, a part of the For the Zoomies podcast, and I'm your host, Andrew Cormier. Today's guest is a 1992 Air Force Academy graduate who ended up cross-commissioning into the Navy upon graduation. He worked as a hard hat salvage diver for three years and then completed BUDS as the leader of class 213. From 1996 to 2017, he was assigned to various SEAL teams and conducted multiple deployments throughout the European, African, Pacific, and Middle Eastern theaters of operation. While getting his master's degree, he did a solo swim across the English Channel in memory of a fallen teammate and friend to raise money for the Navy SEAL Foundation. Since retiring from the Navy, he spends his time sharing his perspective to young leaders across America through public speaking, along with working as the chief revenue officer at Katsu, a fitness and recovery company with the mission of improving the lives of wounded warriors. Ladies and gentlemen, Captain John Doolittle. Thanks, Andrew. Nice, uh, nice lead in, man. I, uh, I appreciate all the kind words and, uh, it's great to see you again. Thanks for, um, uh, thanks for letting me be on your show, man. Uh, it's awesome. I, I hope the cadets remember you from, uh, our M5, our, our warfighter talk about a month ago, but, um, it's, it's really good to, to be able to get more of your message out to, to a community that kind of needs to hear it. Andrew, it had been 33 years since I was a three degree sitting through an M5 in that exact room. <laughs> I think I, I might have a little bit of PTSD from that, that time of my life, but uh, I've gotten past it. The post-lunch, you know, warm yeah. F1 room that, you know. To get right into the question set here. All right. What, what, uh, what brought you to the Academy? You know, give us a little background about what, what life was like before the Academy and what brought you here. Okay. Um, 1987, there was a movie out. You might've heard of it called top, top gun. (laughs) (laughs) And, uh, I, I I tell you, it was one of the most incredible uh, recruiting films the Navy ever did. Because uh, everybody in my little sphere of influence, they all wanted to go be fighter jacks in the Navy. And um, that's really uh, what kickstarted it for me. I mean, my, my dad was, was Air Force. Um, he was a weapons controller during, um, during Vietnam, a small island between Vietnam and Okinawa. Um, it's interesting. He never really pushed me, per se, to to join the air force. Uh, but when top gun came out and a buddy of mine that I swam with, I was a swimmer. Um, and he went to the air force Academy. Uh, yeah, I just, I just, uh, I tried to go to the Naval Academy and I got shot down immediately. <laughs> and, uh, uh, air force Academy, I barely, barely, Oh my gosh, barely had the requirements to get in, but, uh, swim coach, was looking for a guy uh, that did my, uh, you know, that, that was like a brushstroke or butterflyer, and that helped that helped get me in. But to answer your question, it probably more than anything was uh, the Navy recruiting film. Mm-hmm. Well, if it makes you feel any better, I didn't even get in my first try, so 
at least you, you got in your first try, whether it's through swimming or whatever the reason was. <laughs> Did you go the prep school? I didn't go to the prep school. I went to uh, Marion Military Institute down okay. in Alabama, but uh, COVID kind of shut things down. So it was, uh, oh, you know, man. they call it, they call you Safa prison while you're here, but uh, that was quite literally a prison. Yeah. Yeah. Prison what, food what and squadron, everything. What squadron are you in? I'm in 15. Okay. So I, mm-hmm. uh, I started in eight back then. It was, you just did your freshman year in that, that squad. I started in a, Eagle Eight. It just had recently changed its name from Evil Eight to Eagle Eight, mm-hmm. uh, and then I did three years uh, Mighty Barons in uh, twenty six. Okay, yeah. Every once in a while, I see an Evil Eight uh, flight suit patch rolling around on someone's shoulder. I, I don't know if they got rolled out with all the twenty tours, but yeah. Uh, so was was Top Gun the reason why the Navy kind of took you upon? commissioning or was it some other reason now it's interesting my uh my grandfather on my dad's side he he always was uh he was part of the navy league um he was an electrical engineer during uh world war ii and i think he because he didn't go in the navy he always felt because all his buddies his brothers and all his buddies went to world war ii overseas and he worked um here on the homeland as an electrical engineer and helping out. Uh, and I think he always felt like he was, had missed something. Um, so as soon as he could, when the war was over, he started getting involved with the Navy league. And I remember being a little kid and he would, uh, take me with him when, you know, he'd go, uh, visit during uh, fleet week in San Francisco. I grew up in, uh, Walnut Creek, uh, and Pleasant Hill and Concord in the Northern California Bay area. And uh, he and my grandmother lived in Santa Rosa and he'd come pick me up, take me on aircraft carriers and stuff. So I always loved the Navy ever since I was a little kid and watching the Blue Angels fly by the, the Golden Gate Bridge and, and, mm-hmm. uh, and all that. So I kind of had that in my blood uh, a little bit from him. And then I had the Air Force in my blood from uh, my dad. He did... Uh, uh, he, he was active for a short while during Vietnam. Then he got out and, uh, he realized almost immediately that he missed the camaraderie of being in the air force. And then he tried for years as, as Vietnam, uh, the drawdowns, uh, started, he tried for years to get back in and, and the air force kept saying, no, uh, but finally, they, they let him back in the reserves, and he did a bunch of different things in the reserves. Uh, towards the end of his time, he was running uh, Civil Air Patrol for uh, Northern California, I believe out of Travis Air Force Base mostly. Um, but yeah, it's, uh, I, had it, I had it in, uh, in my family, and, uh, but nobody ever really pushed me, and then, you know, Friends of mine started going in the military. Top Gun came out and bam, I went. Yeah, but but so, you know, you went, you wanted to fly. This is true. You came to the Air Force Academy. What 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 pushed you into the Navy? <laughs> oh, you're going to go there, aren't you? Okay, so <laughs> I was not the best student of the uh, True Blue 92 Air Force <laughs> cadets. Um, I... Uh, <laughs> I, I struggled a little bit. 
Um, I was on academic probation. Uh, God, I don't even know if I should put this on your podcast. But uh, six, I can edit it out after if you want me to. Times. Yeah, six times I was on academic probation. I kept getting in trouble. And I, ju- I just, I, I struggled there, man. I, I struggled. And uh, mm-hmm. academically, uh, uh, I was just always cutting it really close. Not on purpose. I was really trying hard, but I was struggling with the combination of being an NCAA swimmer. I swam all four years for Casey Converse and, uh, you know, as a varsity swimmer all four years. And um, the combination of that, the academics that were harder than anything I'd ever done, and the military performance piece and the requirements associated with that, uh, put all that together. And I was, uh, yeah, I was in the hurt locker. I was just uh, struggling there. Mm-hmm. So did that kind of bring you to, you know, pilot wasn't, wasn't an option for you and yeah, I guess naval I aviation could have been. Yeah. I should have finished that story. Right. So because <laughs> I was not at the bottom, I, I was at the bottom of my class basically in 91. Uh, so this was president Bush number 41, president Bush's, uh, uh administration. So in, in 1991, uh, the Air Force came out and said, okay, USAFA uh, graduates that are not in the top third of their class will not go to UPT. Mm-hmm. Uh, the rest will be banked for a year uh, or go do um, other things in the Air Force. And all I heard was being banked for a year. And I was, you know, 19, 20 at the time. And and this is <laughs> this is actually a pretty good lesson for your listeners. Um one year sounds like a really long time. It's not really that long. So what I ended up doing was putting in my paperwork to cross commission into the Navy to go into the SEAL teams. Um, but the irony of that decision is once I got in the Navy, I got denied going to BUDS, that SEAL training. I got denied six times before I finally got in. So I was in the regular Navy as a hard hat diver and ship driver for three years. So, you know, if you look back on it, if I had just taken the one year uh, banked time, then I could have gone to UPT. But hey, man, everything, I I believe everything happens for a reason. And um, so I ended up leaving the Air Force. I was commissioned. So same day of graduation, uh, actually in the morning, we all went and got commission before graduation. So I got commissioned as an ensign. So technically when I uh, graduated through my hat and air and all that, I was actually an ensign uh, wearing a uh, Air Force <laughs> Academy uh, uniform. Um, you could have left out the whole academic probation thing once you said the top third of the class. It's like, you could have been at the 50% point and be like, yeah, I mean, I did okay. <laughs> well, it's okay, though, because I, I, I want people to understand that uh, they are there at the zoo, at, at the academy. <laughs> Sorry, the zoo. But uh, just because you get in a little bit of trouble, just because you hit some rough spots, just because you're on academic probation or whatever, it's, it's not the end of the world, man. It, it really isn't. As long as you surround yourself by good people and teammates and wingmen uh, and women, uh, yeah, you, you can make it through about anything. And that's uh, that's actually part of where I'd like to drive kind of the conversation today is. Uh, yeah, of course. It really is 
kind of amazing what you can achieve when your mindset is right and you surround yourself with the right people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess going kind of off that tangent, um, I mentioned in, in the in the intro that you swam the English Channel, and um, upon closer reading, you did that for um, Neil Roberts. Is that right? Yep. Yep. He they was last um, Neil Roberts at the time when I when I showed up at SEAL Team Two. Uh, I had finished SEAL training. I had finished jump school. I thought I was all you know big and bad. Didn't have my trident yet because back then, uh, before you were awarded the Navy SEAL trident, you had to be on a probation status for a year or so at the team that you went to. So I walk in, I'm in my, uh, my service dress blues. I'm all dressed up, got like my three or four ribbons on. I'm feeling important. I walk in and I meet two guys on the quarter deck at SEAL team two. And one of them was Neil Roberts. And, uh, those guys, quote unquote, took me under their wing for uh, immediately. And uh, but over time, Neil became one of my mentors at the team and uh, became friends with him and later on friends with his wife, uh, Patty. And uh, when Neil was killed, uh, he was the first SEAL to die in combat after 9-11. So um, when uh, when Neil died uh i actually reached out to one of my mentors uh that i grew up swimming for a guy named mike troy um navy seal from vietnam era did three tours in vietnam and uh after he was done in the navy started coaching swimming coached a lot of incredible swimmers but uh my sister and i swam for him in uh, in high school so behind my uh my dad and my mom uh, and my grandparents and whatnot. Uh, he was, he was definitely a mentor for me. And, uh, that's something I always try to emphasize with people. If, if you don't have a mentor, a non-family mentor in, in your life, it's really important that you get that because occasionally in life you come across that you come to these, uh, sort of forks in the road trying to decide what to do. It's just really good to have a mentor. So for me, I, I called, uh, I called Mike after Neil, uh, died and I was going to school for the Navy at the Naval postgraduate school. And I said, Hey Mike, I, uh, I want to do something to memorialize, uh, Neil. I'm stuck at school right now. A lot of my teammates are overseas getting after it. Um, do you have any ideas? And without skipping a beat, he said, yeah you should swim the English channel and do it for your buddy. <laughs> and I, I was like, Mike, I, I swam like the hundred fly in college, <laughs> 200 breast. Never done a marathon swim in my life. He's like, yeah, well you made it through seal training. I'm, I'm sure you can do it. And, he hung mm. up. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so I called Patty, Neil's wife. And I, I ran that idea by her. And it was after that call that I was like, Oh my God, I'm doing it because she was so, Oh, just over the moon about the whole idea. So yeah, um, ended up uh, taking some time off, went over to Dover, England and uh, did that. That was a challenge. It's one of the hardest things I've ever done. But, um, you know, uh, without going into the whole English Channel swim story, I, w- I will say this about halfway across. So it's 21 miles as the crow flies. 
And after it, when, when you look at your GPS track, you go through two uh, tidal shifts. So that track that we actually covered for my swim was uh, 37.7 miles. Oh my God. About halfway across, uh, the wind started picking up and it was going opposite of uh, the tides and currents. So instead of swimming in swells, we suddenly, I, I was swimming in, in this chop, this three to four mm-hmm. foot chop, which was crazy. And I remember, I remember my stroke count was falling. My shoulder was starting to hurt a lot. I was starting to internalize all the pain and discomfort. And I look up because you got a pilot boat. You got a chase boat, pilot boat, whatever you want to call it. And you, you don't really navigate across on your own. You just navigate wherever the boat's going. So you just keep the boat, in my case, off to the right mm-hmm. and a little bit upwind. And uh, I look over when I, everything, my, my mind, and I'm totally self-absorbed in my pain and suffering. And uh, I look over and there's the support crew. My dad was part of the support crew. And they uh, had snuck on a, a three by five American flag. And they're holding it up in the air, just like 20 knots of wind. And I remember seeing that American flag. And it was like all the pain and discomfort just melted away. I thought about Patty. I thought about Neil. I thought about a lot of my friends that I've lost at that point and how many more, because that was, that was in 2004 mm-hmm. and how many more we, we were going to lose. And um, yeah, I like, I like bringing that up because uh, you know, sometimes in life you'll do things that are tough and hard and it's always nice to do things uh, for a purpose that's greater or bigger than yourself. Uh, in this case, it was for um, a Gold Star family and other Gold Star that I knew, uh, Gold Star families I knew we'd have in the, in the community. But yeah, great, just a great experience. Incredible. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, one of the coolest things I've ever done. Yeah, you mentioned purpose and you know, it sounds like that's what kept you going when you're in the in the channel, but I think that's one thing that people have a hard time grasping onto is seeking out opportunities. Like you you called up your coach, was it Troy, correct? Yeah, Mike Troy. Yeah. Um to 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 put yourself out in that, you know, nobody asked you to do it, nobody told you to do it. Um, you know, people don't usually look for adversity. And, um, I mean, I don't necessarily advise, you know, going out and looking for adversity because it might be like too much to handle, or I I shouldn't say looking for adversity because adversity is the only way that you grow, but, um, looking for the correct adversity. And, um, you know, this sounds like a really good example of, you know, that is, you know, Swimming the English Channel is no easy feat. That is a uh, a really high threshold of adversity. How do you just pick out what you want to do when you want to memorialize someone or you know have a purpose behind something? Uh, oh, yeah. well, for me, it was uh, I, I just I I didn't know. I had no idea, but I knew I needed something. I needed 
to pursue something difficult and hard. Um, and I've always felt that and had that in, in my life. And at that point, I just, I, I relied on Mike for an idea and he gave it to me. Mm. But, uh, any, any time during life, I feel like it's always good to have, uh, short-term goals, long-term goals, things that you're always chasing. And when you're at the Academy, um, that's just, that's just part of what's fed to you there is everything's goal oriented. Um, you know, like checkpoints. Yeah. Yeah. The long-term goals, graduation, the short-term goal is passing the Sammy on Saturday, Mm -hmm. whatever. But, um, when you leave and you go into the military, I feel like it's important you still do that. And sometimes the military won't, won't give that to you. Sometimes you got to do that for yourself. And for a lot of people that have an athletic background, um, they'll look for that adversity in uh, physical events, but it doesn't have to be physical events. It could be, it could be anything. It could be psychological stuff. It could be behavioral health stuff. It could be reading, it could be learning. There's so much you could do, but you should always, in my opinion, <laughs> to caveat everything with that, in my opinion, <laughs> everything in life rolls better when you're goal oriented and you're chasing something. If you're not, chasing something, you become stagnant. And when you become stagnant, um, everything else seems to slowly uh, fall apart, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. I believe you You also did a, a frogman swim. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for bringing that up. Um, I live in St. Petersburg, Florida with uh I'm a married, beautiful wife, Katie, three kids. Sean is 20. Ryan's 18. Sean's at UCF. Ryan's at Auburn University and Meg's 16. And she's in high school here at St. Pete High. And uh, one of the things we do here in the St. Pete, Tampa region is we do every January, we have a swim that directly supports the Navy SEAL Foundation. And the Navy SEAL Foundation helps, uh, they do a lot of things for the force, both active duty and veterans. Um, but one of the things they do that I just, I love, is they really provide a lot of resources for Gold Star families, surviving spouses and surviving kids. Okay, so jump back to, uh, let's see, it would have been... Um, November, December, 2010, I believe. Yeah, it was 2010. Dan Knossen, uh, SEAL Lieutenant. He's in Afghanistan. Uh, they're inserting on target. Um, Dan's a second in order of March. The chopper lands and uh, they're all moving out. And um, he steps on a pressure plate IED, improvised explosive device. And the IED goes uh, low order, meaning that the entire ring charge did not go, but the, the charge under Dan, immediately under Dan, uh, did go. Uh, enough that it blew off both his legs above the knees. Um, and uh, Dan uh, was medevaced, of course. And um, by the time he got to Walter Reed um, and was receiving his Purple Heart, um, it had been uh, 
like six or eight days or something after after the incident. Um, and we immediately heard about it. I was stationed at that time. I was doing a staff tour at SOCOM, that's Special Operations Command Headquarters, which is in Tampa. And uh, we heard about Dan. And, uh, and we heard that the family uh, kind of was in, you know, financial need. They were, they, they, they need some help. And back then our foundations, and I say foundations because there's dozens of them now, but um, the foundations didn't have a lot of money. And so mm-hmm. uh, about 25 of us put our heads together, came up with the idea to uh, swim across Tampa Bay, not all the way across Tampa Bay, but from St. <laughs> Pete to the peninsula where SOCOM is, about 5K, so like mm-hmm. three, two miles or something. And uh, so a bunch of us, <laughs> we didn't we didn't ask for permission, we didn't, the Coast Guard didn't clear us or anything. We just kind of showed up on a January morning really early before the sun came up and we all pushed off and each of us had a kayak and we agreed before we did that swim that we we would try to raise some money for Dan's family. Back to my earlier point. Mm -hmm. And, um, and so we did the swim. It was cold. It was like 37 degrees outside and water temp was mid fifties. And uh, so we finish and we're at the American Legion on the Tampa side and we're counting up all the, all the wads of dollar bills and IOUs written on bar napkins and you know, <laughs> voided checks and all this stuff. And at the end of the party, when um, we added all, we were hoping to give the family three to $5,000. And when we added it all up, it was 30 grand, three <laughs> zero. And that's when we realized, and this, and this was like 14 years ago, 13 years ago. And that's when we realized, oh, wow, we're, we're on to something here. Um, so then long story longer, the swim has evolved every year. And it now all the resources from the swim go to the Navy SEAL Foundation. And it's just incredible because that money all goes to help Gold Star families, Gold Star uh, kids. And um, yeah, I'm on the board. It's yeah, I, I love it. It's one of my uh, favorite things that that I do. Mm-hmm. It sounds like everything you do just revolves around giving back to to people that need it more than you. Uh yeah. I, I mean, I don't know. I I I try. You know, you you, you get out of the military. I did twenty five years, twenty five plus uh, in the navy. Bill. Most at, most at times in the SEAL teams, and you know. When you spend, so let's count the academy, right? So 25 plus 40. So when you spend nearly three decades basically in service to this country in some shape or form, you 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 kind of grow accustomed to a life of service. And what I will tell your listeners, when that's gone, you miss it immediately. And mm-hmm. um, everybody... In, in, in my circles that I, I navigate in, everybody looks for a way to still help out and be relevant in some way, whether it's paying it forward in some way, being involved with Gold Star families or just being involved with the ROTC units or what have you. Um, 
I, th- I think it's important. I think uh, when you spend a career serving the country and serving others, serving purposes that are bigger than yourself, uh, when you get out of the military, it's important that you try to maintain that to some degree, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Kind of, kind of moving on to um, a, a discussion point that you had when when you were here during that M five. Um, and I think this is a big part of your, the majority of your public speaking is to to look out for your friends, you know, especially the ones that are going through hard times, because, you know, especially at the academy here, life is not easy. Um, uh, I'll extend that out into the military and even beyond to the civilian world. Life gets hard. Um, True. What, what, what would you tell people? To, to encourage them to look out for their friends that might be going through something? <sighs> There's so many angles we could go on this. Um, I don't know if you want to start with with your story. I think that would be that would be a good way to, to lead into it. Yeah. Um, all right. Let's uh, let's talk about that one. So it's uh, December 22nd. Uh, 2012. Uh, I'm stationed over in Germany. We uh, had a unit there. I was the commanding officer. Um, And one of my good friends, uh, Joe Price, was also a commanding officer at the time. So I was our our unit CO in Germany, and he was a team CO, SEAL Team 4 CO, and he's down in Afghanistan. And um, he had one of his task units up in Germany working for me uh, and dealing with our partners, you know, doing through, buying with, training, JSET training, and that kind of stuff that you'll do when you get out of the Air Force Academy someday. And uh, so Joe's <laughs> guys were doing stuff for me and with me in Europe and in the European theater. And then I had guys down in Afghanistan working for Joe. So every uh, week we would have a face phone or VTC, you know, a video teleconference, just like you and I are doing right now. Mm-hmm. And, um, and then anyway, you know, that, 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 that was a typical thing back, back then. And um, so anyway, I remember <clears throat> I was taking Sean to a birthday party right outside Bubligan, Germany. Um and uh, I remember it was cold, there's snow on the ground, you know, it's December. Germany's kind of chilly in, in December. And I'm um, walking to Sean into the birthday party. My Blackberry uh, starts ringing and uh, I pick it up and it's a friend of mine uh, from, uh, from Virginia Beach. So I had an operational commander in Germany, General Mike Repass at Sockier, Special Operations Command Europe. He was my operational boss. My administrative boss was back in, in Virginia Beach. And uh, so one of his guys calls me, and I could tell right away in, uh, in his voice that something really bad just happened. And, um, you know, I, I, and I said this during the M5, you know, these calls, uh, these bad news calls, um, when you go into a life of service in the military, you will definitely get these calls. It's just, it comes with the territory. Um, Being in the military is inherently uh, dangerous for a lot of reasons. 
it doesn't matter where you go in the military. Um, so anyway, the, um, I pick up the phone. I could tell it was bad news. He goes, Hey John, I got bad news. Um, it's it. And I said, okay, Jamie, who was it? And he said, uh, it was Job. And I said, okay, took a deep breath because Job is a good friend of mine. Uh, and, and also an air force Academy grad. I was in 92. Uh, he was 93 and I took a deep breath. I said, oh man, okay, what, what happened? And it's what he said next that took the wind right out of my sails. I was expecting to hear some kind of, I mean, he was a commanding officer in Afghanistan in combat, leading troops in combat, right? So what he said next, just to this day, I just can't believe it. Um, he said, well, John, what you need to know is uh, it appears that Job uh, died by his own hand, uh, self-inflicted gunshot wound to the head. And when he said that, I just felt all the air go out of my sails. And there's a lot more to the story beyond that. But in the, um, in the interest of time, uh, what I will say is my takeaway from that experience and almost all of my teammates takeaway from that experience was if it can happen to Job, a commanding officer of a SEAL team overseas in combat operations, if it can happen to him, one of the most resilient guys, one of the strongest personalities and leaders in all of the SEAL teams at the time, he was. Everybody loved Job, man. He was on his 14th deployment. If it can happen to Job, it can happen to everybody. My, my biggest takeaway from that was that everybody's got a breaking point. I don't care how much of a stud at or a stud that you are or you think you are. Everybody's got a breaking point. And when you're looking at your wingmen and, and, and you think everything's good with them, it might not always be good. And I... I look back on, on what happened with Job, and yes, we would have these weekly calls, and they, I, that they early on in their deployment, they lost a SEAL uh, on an operation, uh, killed in action. And then later, a few, four or five weeks later, they lost two more operators on an operation, so three uh, KIA um on that deployment, I think before the, the midpoint of the deployment, six month deployment. And I would do these weekly calls with Job and I could see after, especially after the, the, that second operation where things were really bad, I could see him starting to go south. And uh, I wish I could go back in time and, 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 and kind of a dr- go through those things differently. Um, I can't tell you, sit here and say it would have made any impact in the decision he ultimately made, you know, a permanent decision, in my opinion, to a temporary problem. That That's what I feel suicide is, permanent solution to a temporary problem. Um, but I've done so much reflecting on that. And so have my friend, we've lost a lot of guys 
and gals to, to suicide. Um, you know, I, I had one deployment in Afghanistan where I was gone over 12 months, it's 13 month deployment, 12, 13 month deployment. And, uh, everybody, um, came home and we, we had some injuries, but everybody came home and within two years, we'd lost three to suicide. So it's, it's incredibly prevalent out there and what, and I know I'm going on a monologue right now. I'm sorry. But oh, you're good, sir. I, I just, I can't emphasize enough how important it is to have some intrusive uh, leadership or just friendship or, or mentorship, just reaching out and seeing if your buddies, and even if they're not your buddies, when, when you have that, that, that kind of that, that sixth sense that something's not right, it's okay to reach out and say, Hey man, are, are you okay? Mm-hmm. And if you're not, are, are you thinking of hurting yourself? Cause I want to help. And you know, I never said that to Job. I wish I could go back in time and change it, but I didn't. I saw him spiraling and I talked to him and he wasn't sleeping. He stopped working out. He wasn't eating well. He just started that when sleep starts to go, everything starts to go. And the biggest indication when, when you're, when you're talking to your uh, friends and teammates uh, about how they're doing a great entry point is, um, Hey, how's your, how's your sleep, man? Because usually the first indication, and this includes uh, MTBI, uh, blast injury, uh, even even PTSD uh, and stress and burnout. One of the first things people will willingly talk about is is sleep, because there's not a stigma associated with sleep. You ask somebody if they got PTSD, there's a huge stigma, right? Mm-hmm. People don't want to talk about their, 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 you know, psychological issues or behavioral health. But when it comes to sleep, and especially because we now know sleep is so important for performance, having a performance conversation is valuable. And if somebody, when you're uh, asking how they're doing with sleep, um, that that's, a, if somebody's struggling with sleep, I guarantee you they're struggling with other stuff. Mm-hmm. And it's a good entry point. It's, it's an easy way to initiate that, that conversation. And, uh, you know, I look back at Job after, uh, that second engagement, his sleep was completely in the tank and he was taking meds for it and all this stuff. Uh, and that should have been a huge warning sign for me and, and all my buddies that were interacting with him. Uh, but we didn't, we didn't know what we know now, um, back, back then. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, I, I really appreciate, you know, you sharing this story because I'm sure it wasn't, you know, it's never easy to bring it up, but, um, I, I hope that some people can take something from it and hopefully prevent that from happening. You know, that, uh, that permanent solution happening to a temporary problem. Hopefully that, that your, your kind of story keeps that from happening. But I guess on, on the bright side, I remember we were talking, you said that, um, Job would be on, uh, the, the wall of, um, academy grads that are fallen out on the terrazzo. Is that correct? Yeah. And I, I gotta tell you, I'm really happy to hear that that decision's been made, uh, at the academy and the association of graduates and everybody that was involved in this, 
decision because I firmly believe that what happened with Job and what happens with a lot of guys that uh, that that the mental health and behavioral health spiral that some guys uh, uh, experience is a direct re, uh, direct result of combat operations. Um, but yes, Job is uh, going to be on the uh, Wall of Heroes. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's very good news because, like you said, you know, just because it's not on the battlefield, it came from something that was on the battlefield, and the same honor should be given to those. Yeah, I, I, I couldn't agree more. You know, when when you're exposed to combat, and, and before nine eleven, we we used to have eighteen months to rest, refit. Um, kind of heal from uh, physical wounds and behavioral health wounds if you had them. Um, 18 months was a long time. After 9-11, it became, uh, for, a, for a lot of guys, it became this port and starboard type thing where you deploy for six months, be home for six. And when you were home for six, you, you really wouldn't be home because a lot of the training would be done elsewhere. So imagine taking 18 months of workup training, squeezing it into uh, six months. And a lot of that workup training involves uh, cumulative subconcussive issues, blast exposure, you know, breaching training, all this kind of stuff. <clears throat> Excuse me. So after 9-11, guys did not have the ability uh, to kind of fully recover from these, especially these kinetic uh, deployments. And um, when you don't get that chance to fully recover, um, you're, it's very easy to get stuck in uh, what they call hypervigilance. So if you've heard of being your body being in the parasympathetic state, which is mm. how you want to be, you know, in order to fall into a good deep sleep and get REM and everything. Um, or you're in your sympathetic state, which is fight or flight. And if you get stuck in the sympathetic state, your sleep is the first thing to go. Well, what happened was what was happening after three, four rotations, these guys would get stuck in that sympathetic state or hypervigilance and their sleep would be in the tank. And if this, if you're never getting stage three or stage four sleep, that's almost a, a, a type of physical torture. Uh, it is physical torture. That's mm-hmm. what they would do to guys back in Vietnam, get them to break. They they wouldn't let, they'd let them sleep, but they would never let them get into recovery sleep. And, um, and that, that was happening to Job. And that is a lot of these guys that are dying by suicide. Uh, a lot of it, my, my opinion, can be attributed to that. Mm-hmm. I guess to round out this episode, because you've, uh, I think you've said a lot of things that us in in the military community need to hear for a really prevalent issue. Um, What other unique advice would you give to anybody that's looking to commission? Anybody looking to commission or go to a service academy? Just commission in general, whether it's OTS, the academy, ROTC. Um, that, uh, uh, leadership's not, not just about you. It's about those that you surround yourself with. Um, in my experience, the best leaders 
were those that went out of their way to know all their teammates at the command, especially the enlisted teammates. Notice I didn't say officers enlisted. They're all teammates and you're all after the same mission. And when you go around your command and you know people's names and you know their wives' names and you know their kids' names and you know what their interests are, it's amazing. It's amazing what those people will do for you and for the command. Um, those officers that show up to a command and uh, say, hey, this is how we're going to do it. And the reason we're going to do it that way is because I said so. The command people will do what they are told. You know, they're in the military. They know how to follow orders and they'll do it. But that is one type of leadership that does not see. I never saw that at succeed in the SEAL teams. Mm-hmm. Um, if you, if you treat it, it, you know, uh, remember I worked for General Petraeus once on the deployment and he used to say this thing. He used to say, uh, uh, everybody influences the battle space, even the strategic corporal. And I remember thinking strategic corporal, what is that? And his, his point was that everybody can have a strategic effect, even the most junior person on the battlefield, even the most junior person at the command can have a strategic effect. If you don't believe me, just think of if they do something wrong and it gets on CNN, right? You got the CNN effect, right? And and if it's bad, that can have strategic consequences. Well, the same is true for good things too. Um, there's a Medal of Honor recipient, a living recipient. His name's Britt Slabinski, uh, nicknamed Slab. He was on the, the, uh, the Roberts Ridge mission as well, correct? Yes, he was. Very good. Very good, Andrew. He actually spoke at NCLS this past year. Oh, God, Slab's amazing. Great, great guy, great leader, an American hero. He has a saying that I love. He, 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 uh, see if I can get right. You're never too junior to have the best idea in the room, and you're never too senior to be wrong. You're never too junior to have the best idea in the room. That can mean tactically, operationally, or strategically. You're never too junior to be that guy and you're never too senior to be wrong. And that's great for officers to keep in mind. You, you might be absolutely convinced that the way you're going to do this A, B or C, this mission, whatever is the way to go. And you might be wrong and you need be, being a good leader means, uh, surrounding yourself with good people. You always hear that, but actually listening to them too, because mm-hmm. you might be wrong. Well, sir, I have never heard that, but I will try my best to live by it because I, I agree with it fundamentally, but I, I really appreciate your time and everything that went into getting this set up and your vulnerability and sharing difficult experiences. Uh, I, I think it, it all went to a good purpose. So thank you. Hey, Andrew, thank, thank you very much uh, for having me on and um, to all your listeners there at the Academy.
hang on. Before you know it, it'll be gone. I graduated 31 years ago, and uh, it seems like it was yesterday, man. Well, thanks for coming on, sir. Thank you. Oh, no.